0: Well, as they're finding their seats, um, I need two volunteers to come forward. I got some handouts for you guys. If I get two people to come forward, and there's, uh, right down there, there's these maps. Maybe, Jerry, you want to get one half of the room, and Jenny, you the other half? All right. So while those are going out to you guys, uh, let's open up our Bibles. We're going to be looking at the book of Acts once again today, Acts chapter 4. Uh, We're going to start in verse 23 and read through verse 31 this morning. (coughs) Acts chapter 4, verses 23 through 31. When they were released... Thus ends our reading of God's earth-shattering word. May all who hear it be filled with the boldness that comes from the Holy Spirit. If you look throughout history, particularly over over the past 2,000 years, what you will discover is that God is having his way that he is being victorious and that his kingdom is expanding. As Americans, too often we we, we tend to have this stunted view when it comes to our world, do we not? We, we either think in terms of America only, as if we are the only nation that is doing anything significant, or we, we, we tend to think in terms of our generation, that that everything that has an impact upon us must be new or recent. And so we ignore the rest of the world, and we ignore the great accomplishments that that happened in our past. We have become both locationally and temporally arrogant, have we not? And, And this carries over into the church as well. Many Christians have this tendency to, to look at, at their immediate context and, and judge the state of the whole world by what they see going on in their backyard. And because we're living in America in the year 2022, it, it can seem to us that things are very, very bleak and that the state of the world is, is highly uncertain. It, it's as almost as, as if God has stepped out of the picture and as a result, Satan is having his way. Well, let me assure you that this is not the case. I mean, consider where the church was roughly 2,000 years ago. I mean, consider what we have read thus far in the book of Acts. The, the church had just gotten started, and it was still stuck in Jerusalem. Sure, there were there were anywhere between 5,000 and 8,000 uh, Christians, and those numbers sound great, do they not? they They seem impressive, and yet that was just a tiny, tiny fraction of the world's population at that time. The kingdom of God was very small, and the mission was very, very big. Now contrast that with where the church is today. I, I handed out these sheets to you, right? Uh, according to the, to the Joshua Project, who, who keeps statistical tabs on these sorts of things, there are now close to a billion people throughout this world who would be considered as faithful Christians. That's 12% of the world's population. And, and then there are another 1.5 billion who, who would be labeled as nominal Christians. Not, not only God knows the hearts of all those people, but but this is an encouraging sign, is it not? And as a, the missions movement continues to grow, we 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 have now brought the gospel to roughly ten thousand pe- different people groups. Granted, there are, there are still over seven thousand people groups whom we still have to reach, but but at the pace that we're we're going at right now we will most likely reach them as well within a generation. <clears throat> Take a look at this map. That's the map on the other side of your paper as well. Uh, and here we see depicted the, the regions of this world where the gospel has gone out. And in the areas that are shaded green, you, you, you not only see a, an established church, but a strong gospel witness as well. In the regions that are yellow, you you see places where the church used to be very, very strong, but has now kind of lost its way. But but even in those places, uh, places that are heavily uh, nominal Christianity, there is still a gospel witness, for, for there are still faithful churches who are committed to fulfilling the Great Commission. And then you have these areas in red, right? And those areas are places in the world where the church really doesn't have any significant presence. Now, now that doesn't mean that there aren't any churches in those regions, but because there are. But there's just not as many as are needed to present a strong gospel witness to everyone. And yet, when you take a look at this map as a whole, what... When, when, and when you consider the statistics that are out there, that, that, that there are now roughly a billion Bible-believing Christians in our world, what you will discover is that God is winning, right? That, that the gospel is going forth and that the name of Jesus is being proclaimed. And the reason that's the case is because God is Sovereign. And he has empowered his church with his Holy Spirit in order to complete the task. Over the past few weeks, we we have been looking at this story in the book of Acts about a a man who was healed, right? Uh, And how this healing of this one man caused uh, a ruckus in the city of Jerusalem. Not, not only did this lame man who was now walking draw a huge crowd, but it, but it led to both Peter and John sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ to thousands upon thousands of Jews, many of whom came to saving faith in this Jesus. And while this should have been a time of rejoicing, there, there were some within that city who were not too thrilled about the preaching of these two men. And so both John and Peter were arrested. And they stood trial before the Sanhedrin that next day. You see, this this religious elite were the ones, they were the ones who were directly involved with the crucifixion of our Lord. And now these apostles were claiming that this Jesus had had come back to life and, and that it was him who had healed this man. And so in an effort to suppress the truth, this Jewish council had ordered a ban on the name of Jesus. No longer was anyone to preach or to teach in this man's name. And yet if you recall, it was both Peter and John who in defiance to this edict stood up and spoke. Listen to what they said. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Well, this council, they, they could not bring a charge against these men as the whole city was praising God for the good deed that they had done. And so they released these two men but, but not without threatening them first, right? Uh, they told these men that they would be punished if they continued to pursue the course that they were taking, if they, if they continued to speak the name of Jesus. And all that leads us to our passage for today, where we see these two men and how they would respond after being reprimanded and released. And the question we must ask, would would they cave to the demands of this council? Or would they persist in their defiance and continue to preach the name of Jesus? Let's find out. Look look at verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. Here we see both Peter and John, after they were first released, seeking out their friends. And the reason they sought him out was to report all that happened to them. Now, we're not exactly sure where this occurred, but but the way this passage as a whole is worded, it, it makes it seem that this was a, a larger gathering and not necessarily a, a smaller intimate setting. While this may not have been the whole of the church that had gathered together, it was definitely a large chunk. And I'm sure that all those who were close to these two men, close to Peter and John, such as the other ten apostles, would have been there. Now now, now think about this from, from their perspective. Think about it from Peter's and John's perspective. This was really the first time since the crucifixion that they had faced any trouble, Right? And now consider the difference in these men from then until now. If you know your Gospels, then you know that it was Peter who denied his Savior three times after Jesus was arrested. And yet now here we see Peter's boldness, do we not? As he stood his ground at that Jewish council, saying that he could not but speak. Or think about how all of these men, these disciples of Jesus, had scattered. How, how, how they went and hid in fear when Jesus was taken away. And yet now here we see them gathering together, not out of fear, but because they were now a part of Jesus' family. And whatever suffering they faced, they would face it together. Hey, think about this. Both Peter and John, they were, they were not only arrested, but then they were threatened by the most powerful Jews within Jerusalem. And they could have easily ran just like they did before. But they didn't. Instead, they, they, they held their ground. They, they took the risk by gathering with their fellow believers in order to warn them of the danger that they were all in. Now ask yourself, how did these two men who only months earlier acted like cowards suddenly grow a backbone? Might I suggest that this newfound courage was not their own? Rather, that these men had now been indwelt and empowered by the Holy Spirit. How many of us feel the pressure? each and every day to keep our mouths shut. Whether it's at work or at school or within our own family. There, there, there's this unspoken rule, am I right? That, that, that to bring up the name of Jesus will, will only cause trouble. And so we feel conflicted within ourselves, right? Because we know that, that the world wants us to stay silent. And yet we also know what we should be doing. That we should be proclaiming Jesus Christ no matter the consequences. To whom do you turn to when the weight of the world is upon you? When when you feel like you're being gagged. To whom did John and Peter turn to? That, that they sought out their church family, Right? They sought out their friends, the very ones in whom they could trust. And as they did this, and they did this in order that they might deal with it together, right? As a family. And this should be our response as well. Dear friends, God has given you an amazing family. And he has designed us to carry one another's burdens. He, he has designed us to encourage one another when we feel afraid or or at a loss as to what to do. And so let us not hide our troubles from one another. Let us, let us not hide our fears and our anxieties. Rather, let us be there for one another that we might strengthen and be strengthened by our brothers and sisters in Christ. You see, both John and Peter went to their friends in order to share their burden, which was really a burden to them all. But that wasn't the only people they went to, was it? For there was another whom they sought. Look at at verse 24. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. And so, what did these people do when they heard about the trouble that they were facing? They went to God in prayer. Here we once again see the, the humbleness of these early Christians, do we not? as they are now praying together in one voice to their God, they, they were now seeking God's will concerning this matter. They, they didn't assume that they knew the solution for their troubles. Instead, they, they sought the Lord Almighty in order to understand His will. And, and this is important, is it not? For, for throughout Jesus' ministry, He stressed the necessity of being in God's will consider John chapter 5 verse 19 it says this so Jesus said to them truly truly I say to you the son can do nothing of his own accord but only what he sees the father doing for whatever the father does that the son does likewise and so not even Jesus relied on his own will but only sought the will of his father Or consider the Lord's prayer. How did Jesus teach his disciples how to pray? Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It is in this prayer that we see a, a relinquishing of control, do we not? For for what is prayed for. What, what do they pray for? For the Father's will. Jesus was telling his disciples that the kingdom of God is all about his Father's will. And why shouldn't it be? I mean, after all, he is the one who is orchestrating everything, is he not? He he is the one who sees all and who knows all. And so he is the one who can come up with a perfect plan. Let me ask you this. When, When trouble comes your way, do you take your worries to God before you take any actions? Before you try to figure it out all on your own with some worldly solution? You you see, prayer is at the heart of what being a Christian is. For, For one of the defining traits of a Christian is that we are dependent. We don't rely on ourselves, but we rely upon Jesus Christ. And not just for our salvation, but for everything in life. We are to be a prayerful people, seeking the Lord in humility, And the best kind of prayer is a prayer that seeks the Father's will. So how did Peter and John and the rest of these Christians pray? How did they begin? They they began with adoration, right? What did we sing earlier? How we adore our God, right? And so these, these Christians they, they begin their their prayer with adoration. They t- t- take a look at how they started this prayer. Look, look at the end of verse 24 once again. It says this Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. This is adoration. They, they are acknowledging the greatness of their God. And what is the attribute that they are communicating? That God is sovereign. And this will become significant as their prayer progresses. For when they finally get to their supplication, when they finally make their request, their request will be dependent upon God's sovereignty. So what is this attribute? What does it mean that God is sovereign? Sovereign. It means that he is in control of everything, right? That that all things are underneath his will. And this is really the theme of this prayer. These people, they're they're looking to their sovereign God during a time when it seems like, like the world is out of control. And so by calling upon this sovereign God, They are are looking to this omnipotent ruler, this one who has all power and all authority over everything. But how do they know that this, this God of theirs has all authority? That he is in control of all things? Well, because he created all things, right? Everything flows from him the heavens and the earth and the sea, and all that is within those realms. I'm pretty sure these Christians had Psalm 146 in mind when they prayed this adoration. Look look at this psalm. I'm going to read the whole thing to you. It says, Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put your putting out your trust in princes and a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them. Did you recognize those words? who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. Now, now there's a lot of things that's communicated in in this psalm, but there's two things that I want to highlight for you. One, those who trust in the strength, strength of men will be greatly disappointed for the power of man is limited and their plans perish with them when they go to the grave. Second thing, those who put their trust in their creator God, well, they are blessed for he is able to exact justice for those who are oppressed, for those who are in need. I think by beginning this prayer in the way that they did, by by quoting this psalm, these Christians, they, they, they have set their troubles into a heavenly perspective, have they not? And, and they are now assured that this God who is sovereign will accomplish his justice by thwarting the plans of these wicked men. So let me ask you, do, do you understand That the God whom you worship is in control of all things? That that when trouble comes your way, the Lord is not surprised? When when you are worried and and anxious, do, do you try to see things from the perspective of your creator? Or do you continue to view things from an earthly point of view? Jesus is calling you to trust in him even in the darkest of hours. He he, he wants you to know that that he is in control even when it looks bleak, for he will bring about his justice and he will be the one who sets all things right. And all of this leads us to the the second portion of these Christians' prayer, the, the, the portion where they pray God's will. Look at verses 25 and 26. Who, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Here we see them quoting another psalm, do we not? this time from Psalm 2, a psalm that was written by David as he was carried along by the Holy Spirit. Look, look at this psalm. Look, look at Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. He will speak with them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell the decree the Lord said to me, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This messianic psalm promises victory to this king, to this son of God whom Yahweh establishes upon his holy hill. The favor of the Lord is upon him. And all other rulers must submit to his authority. And so when these enemies, these enemies of this Son of God plot against him, they are plotting against the very one who is God's chosen servant. In essence, they are are plotting against God himself. And this is why the Lord is laughing, laughing in derision. For these wicked rulers, they they plot in vain. They they do not have the power to overcome the will of God Almighty. For God has established, he has has given authority to his chosen servant. and And it will be this servant who will dash them to pieces. He will strike these wicked rulers with his iron rod and they will shatter. And this will be the fate of every world power who refuses to pay homage to the Son, who refuses to seek refuge in the Son. It, it's easy to see why these Christians quote this psalm, is it not? Especially considering the circumstances that they were in. For this, this psalm, it was written about Jesus, Right? And now these these worldly authorities these ones who had battled Jesus once before had now placed a ban on preaching the name of Jesus. You see they were plotting against him once again. They refused to kiss the son and in so doing they have kindled his wrath. In essence this this psalm is a reminder to these Christians of what the will of God is. That when Jesus is on their side, then the schemes of these earthly authorities will always be in vain. Just like these early Christians, we too need to learn how to pray the scriptures. We, we need to learn how to integrate God's word into our prayer life. And the reason we need to do that is is so that we might be praying God's will. That we might be believing his promises. These things that have been written down for us. You see, when, when, when we pray God's word, we cannot go wrong. For this is one way that we can actually pray in the spirit for the words of scripture are the words of the spirit are they not these these early Christians they knew the will of God because they knew God's word but more than that they also understood the the meaning of this psalm because in a in a very real sense they saw it lived out right before them did they not look look at verses 27 and 28 of our passage For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. These Christians have interpreted this messianic psalm in light of the persecution that Jesus faced as he was led to the cross in order to die for the sins of his people. And and yet they recognized that even though these wicked schemes that came from these wicked men, that it was still the Father's will to have his son crucified. That God had already predetermined that Jesus would suffer a death like this in order that his plan of salvation would come to fruition. And that's because Jesus had to suffer. He had to suffer for our sake in order that that a true atoning sacrifice would cover over the sins of God's people. And so again, when, when it looks like these worldly authorities were victorious, when they were plotting against God and his anointed one, they weren't victorious at all. Their, their, their plotting was in vain. Because what they intended for evil, God intended for good. And this leads us to the last part of our prayer, of the prayer of these saints, which is their supplication, right? When, when they now ask the Lord for his assistance. Look, look at what look at their petitions. Look at look at verses 29 and 30. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. It is in this supplication that of these early Christians that we see, given three petitions, right? They, three. They're asking God for three things. One, that 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 God would look upon these threats that had been uttered against John and Peter. <clears throat> you, you see, these these people believe that if if God truly examined these these threats that were being made, then then surely He would intervene. And the reason he would intervene is because these threats went directly against his will. I mean, think about it. These, these worldly authorities had placed a ban on the name of Jesus, upon the name of his exalted one, the one whom he had enthroned upon his holy hill. And so these Christians, they, they assume that if God examined all the evidence, if, they, if God looked at these threats, then he would intervene on their behalf. And so their first petition was for God to look, for him to examine what had been done and for him to judge accordingly. And yet what they aren't praying for is for, for God to smite their enemies, right? No, they're, they're, they're praying for boldness, right? Right? And this is the second thing that we see them asking for. Boldness for themselves that they might continue to speak the name of Jesus. In other words, they needed courage. That they might continue to preach and teach the gospel message to a lost world. And so their second petition was for boldness in the gospel. And notice the wording that these Christians use. Grant to your servants... The, the, the humility in their voices is almost tangible, is it not? The, this word grant, it implies that it is up to God whether or not they will be able to speak his son's name. And so it's not up to the Sanhedrin, and it's not even up to them. It's up to God. He, he will be the one who will decide if they will be able to speak the name of Jesus. For speaking that name is a privilege. And, and then look at the other word that they chose to use. This this word servant. Now, now, now servant implies that they have submitted themselves to the will of their king. That he is their master and they are his slaves. Again, this speaks to the humbleness of these people. People. And so what what they are truly asking for was was for God to allow them, was for God to grant them the privilege of continuing on in this proclaiming of the message of Jesus with the same boldness that they had before, that they would speak his name without caving or, or shifting the message, without trying to appease these worldly authorities. They wanted to speak the gospel with all clarity. They wanted to proclaim the name of Jesus, even if it offended many people, even if it led to their own persecution. They were seeking this privilege, and they were seeking it from the sovereign God. And then finally, we we see their third petition, as they asked God to continue to heal and to pour out his signs and wonders among them. And the reason they were praying for this was was so that they would be able to continue to have these wonderful opportunities like the one Peter and John just had, where, where they were able to proclaim the name of Jesus to thousands and thousands of Jews. I mean, think about the context of this prayer. Peter and John had just seen a multitude come to Christ because God had healed a man who had been lame since birth. And and this man had been healed, remember, in the name of Jesus Christ. And so what they were essentially praying for was for God's validation behind the message they were preaching, that the name of Jesus would be seen as authoritative. the the way these early Christians prayed, the the way they laid out this supplication, it it communicated that they had a clear understanding of God's sovereignty. For for they knew that it was God's choice and and his choice alone whether or not they could once again speak the name of Jesus. And they knew that it was God's choice and, and his choice alone when and where these miracles and signs and wonders what happened. That the healing of this crippled man was neither Peter nor John's doing. For, for they knew that it was only through God's power that any of these things could be done. So, so when we put this all together, what, what do we see in this prayer? One, we, we see a humble adoration as they acknowledge God's sovereignty. Two, we we, we also see humility in the fact that they included Scripture as they tried to both understand and pray God's will. And finally, three, we, we see humility again in their supplication as they consider themselves God's servant and only ask for his help in order that they might be a part of his will. Bottom line, when you add this all up, you get a prayer where God is sovereign and where God's people are humble. How do you think God will respond to a prayer like that? Look at our last verse. Look at verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. Shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. The place was shaken in this shaking that came from God we we, we see this immediate response from the Lord Almighty He had brought about a sign for these believers that that he had heard their prayers and that he would answer them, that he was listening, that he had looked upon the threats of those worldly leaders and he would bring about his judgment. This shaking, how, how encouraging was this shaking to these people? especially considering the trials that were before them. But it wasn't only the shaking, was it? That wasn't the only immediate response. For for Luke also tells us that the Holy Spirit then filled them with his power, granting them the courage that they they had just asked for, right? In order that they might boldly speak the name of Jesus. And that's what Luke tells us, right? Right? that they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Despite the ban that had been placed on them, they once again hit the streets in order to tell the world about their risen Savior. And this is exactly what we'll see as we continue throughout this book, that that these disciples would give a bold, bold witness of Jesus Christ. Here's the thing. God will not be muzzled. There there is no earthly authority that can stop him from speaking through his servants. Not the Sanhedrin, not Rome, not even the nations that consider themselves world powers today. For when we pray in God's will, you can be certain that God will answer such prayers that he will give you the boldness that you desire to speak his gospel, to speak the name of Jesus Christ. Listen, these, these early Christians were no different than you and from me. The boldness that they had was a supernatural boldness. And we as Christians today must realize this, that God still speaks through his people. That, that he has empowered his people through his Holy Spirit. But in this fact, we must also realize that, that, that we cannot bring about Christ's kingdom in our own strength, right? That we need the Holy Spirit. That, that we need him to go before us and lead the way. And that is because God is sovereign. Sovereign. He is sovereign over the authorities of this world and he is, a so, he is sovereign over his servants who are proclaiming this message. And so we should seek him and we should seek his strength in order that we might be strengthened. Am I right? Strengthened to speak boldly the name of Jesus. When, when you look at that, at those stats that I gave you earlier, and we can take encouragement from those numbers. Don't get me wrong. Yet the job is not finished, right? There are many more people groups who need to hear the gospel. And even though 12% of the world's population now have a saving faith in Jesus Christ, what does that mean? That means that 88% are going to hell. Let us continue to pray for boldness. Let us continue to pray for the name of Jesus to be proclaimed. Let's bow our heads. Father, you you truly are the sovereign God. There, There is nothing that takes place in this world without your permission. And so we come to you now, praying that same prayer that this early church prayed. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in the city of Jerusalem they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord... Look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.